the gospel and how the gospel comes into a person's life. And then the second half is how we live out the gospel. So I, I thought about this lamp, and it, this is a little bit like what we are like before knowing Christ. You know, we were made in God's image. There's beauty in us, but we're overlooked. And possibly imagine how this thing looked when it was covered with grease and really didn't look very good at all. But, you know, we're overlooked, but God saw us. And he saw that we were... disconnected from him you know and we know and understand that that's what the first part of Ephesians describes that we were disconnected from God and that he wanted to connect us back to his life oh. <laughs> and so what he did is you know he he saw that we were without any kind of power to live the godly life that we wanted to live or live the kind of fruitful life that we wanted to live and he came in the form of his son and he connected us and what ephesians actually if you could hand me that uh, bible there debbie if you could just hold it open for me this is vanna white my wife debbie vanna white (laughs) and uh, if you can come yeah just right there ephesians chapter three he, through Jesus, connected us to his power. And, and the first half of Ephesians describes it in chapter 3, verses 19 to 21. Uh, to know Christ that, and uh, to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think, according to the power at work within us, To him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen. And so the power of God through the Holy Spirit, the power of God through the cross, connected us to God. He made us alive in Christ. But we still still have a choice. And the choice is whether we would shine through that power. And there's, there's a freedom that happens when Christ comes in. But we must decide by our yielding of our will to let the light shine. And so, you know, my turning that handle symbolizes the second half of the book of Ephesians, where we, once the power has been connected to us through Jesus, have to choose to yield to him. We have to choose to let his will be our will. We have to choose to let our light shine through him. And I, I'm going to leave this on uh, just as a little symbol of the, the chapter, but I, I thought that was a good review of the book of Ephesians for us and so that we would understand what the situation is. You know, the, the, the sermon series that you're in is called Redeemed Vocation. And redeemed is exactly what I just showed you, where something that is thought of to be trash, something that's overlooked, something like a slave is bought back from slavery through the love of God. We were slaves to sin. We were slaves to ourselves, to Satan. And God saw us covered with cobwebs, and he said, I want to save this one. I'm going to reach this one. And he came and gave us life. He gave us not only life through Jesus, but he gave us a purpose. And when we think of the word vocation, the word vocation is also, it's actually taken from the, the Latin word for, for voc, was described vocare, which is the word for calling. You know, I was a vocational rehabilitation counselor. I, I, I uh, studied uh, vocational rehabilitation counseling in my master's degree, and this is all before I became a Christian, and I think God had a very great sense of humor uh, because one of my roles was to be able to take someone who had been in an injury, some kind of work-related injury, you know, maybe they had broken their back or they had gone through some kind of other disability and to work with their therapists, their doctors, their lawyers, the company that had hired them initially with other uh, specialists and to coordinate in a neutral fashion them toward rehabilitation, toward being able to be redeemed back from something that had broken their spirit and possibly their body. I remember there was one guy who was a crane operator who he, uh, he got out of the cab of his crane in this giant wrecking ball that he was handling, and there was a piece of steel that probably weighed several hundred pounds. And he was a big guy. He reached down to just move it by hand, 
and he wrenched his back and herniated his disc permanently. And this giant of a man was, was suffering from the, the results of, of that injury. And my role as a vocational rehabilitation counselor was to come in, assess the situation, work with this therapist, figure out what his, his next step was, but also to see whether perhaps he could do something else in life. Because he was going to be paid out. He wasn't going to be able to do that same job anymore. But one of the things that we laughed about, you know, and he was a Christian. I wasn't a Christian at the time. And he said, you know, God has a purpose for my vocation, my calling. And, you know, God will show us what to do. And so we did some testing and saw that he had an aptitude for something that was very surprising. He went from handling a giant crane to becoming a contact lens technician. So he went from the biggest, you know, five-ton wrecking ball to something so tiny. And he had that job, and he really found it satisfying for him. I mean, his back pain, he had to deal with that with some of the fusions and the surgeries that he went through. But it was a successful rehabilitation, and he was able to have that as his career until whenever he wanted to choose to go on to something else. But, you know, God takes us. The series is called Redeemed Vocation, and the name of the message in your notes is Redeemed Family. God taking us and redeeming us, taking us and helping us to see our vocation, our calling. And there is a vocation or calling for families. Um, Debbie and I are going to talk about this message as a family because I thought, you know, it makes sense as we're talking about family uh, that we would share kind of from the word as well as from our testimony what it is that God has taught us. And uh, those notes are pretty comprehensive. I put it in as small a print as I could so that you would go blind when you were looking at it. But um, if I miss some points, I'm giving it to you so that you can go home and study it a little bit more. But the goal today is to be able to think about what it is that God wants to do in our families. And our families are not just our nuclear families, our mothers, our fathers, our children, and those are extended family beyond that. It is also to think about the families that we're in now. We're in the family of God. And so there's an application for some of the very same principles in the family of God. So uh, my wife, Debbie, is from Hilo, Hawaii, and she's going to share at some point, different points during the message. But I thought we would read the passage, the passage that's in your your, uh, notes there. But we're going to do it in a little unusual way. We're... Because she's from Hilo, Hawaii, she's going to read the, uh, the Jesus book, which is the Pigeon Bible. Uh, not Pigeon like the bird, but P-I-D-G-I-N, or Hawaiian Creole is an actual language. And we got to know the couple that was working for decades on the translation of Hawaiian Creole into a language that could be read and understood. So she's going to read verse by verse from Ephesians 6, 1 to 4. You can follow along, and I'll, I'll give the uh, English translation uh, after she says her, her part. Ephesians 6, 1. Same thing for you kids. Listen to your mother and your father, guys, because you guys stay tight with the boss, and because that's the right thing for do. Very good, Debbie. Children, obey your parents and the Lord, for this is right. The Bible says, show respect for your mother and your father. From the Ten Commandments, that's the first rule that God make promise to, you know. Honor your father and mother. This is the first commandment with a promise. This is what God say when, wait, sorry. This is what God say when, when he went give that rule. When you do this, then everything going to come okay for you. And you're going to live a long time on top of the earth. That it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Same thing for you, Father guys. No hassle your kids so they come hoo-hoo. More better teach them right and show them everything the boss like them for you know and for do. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So now you can go into the Hawaiian culture and and be able to witness because you now have the Jesus book. 
You know, family life can be terrible, it can be complicated, and it can be beautiful. Uh, I want to share just a little bit about um, how a message is constructed. Some of you are preachers, some of you are uh, teachers, and some of you are members of the church. But there's a, there's a secret sauce to how do you put together a message. And I, and I put it down in four questions. What you do is you ask, what does the passage say? What does the passage mean? What does the passage mean to the people with whom you're sharing the message? And then a final question I like to add on is, why did God choose this speaker or me or us for his message today? So what does the passage say? You know, very simply, I've written, I've written it down here. We're just going to breeze through this, but I'm going to go into a little bit more detail. Uh, what does the passage say? It says that redeemed family members, those who have been touched by the power and, and love of Christ, redeemed family members each have a calling or a vocation from the Lord. What does the passage mean? It says redeemed families powerfully display God's glory and kingdom. That's what it means to us as we think about it, is that God wants to show his glory, his power in a family. What does the passage mean to all of you? And as I prayed about that and thought about Nick and, and the church and everything that you've been through and what God has for you on the future, and I think this is one thing that, that God wants to say, is that a redeemed family life is offered in love to every person here. Every one of us here, God is offering that kind of redeemed family. And some of you already have responded to that. You've already said yes to Jesus, and you've joined his family, the family of God. But perhaps you've got some injuries or complications in your own family, some things where you've had to say, you know, I'm not sure how this is going to be resolved. I think God has a solution and a guidance for all of us here. And that is something that God has done in our lives, too. And then why did God happen to choose us to be in his message today, to give his message today? I think this, this message of a redeemed family is our story. The story of God taking a family, and especially my own family, and breaking through. I'm going to say uh, something I usually say when I go to celebrate recovery. I'm a grateful believer in Jesus Christ, and I am in recovery from pride, fear, anger, and lust, and my name is Richard. Hi, Richard. You can say hi, Richard, those of you that understand. <laughs> <laughs> a little participation. Um, you know, when I looked at the passage, and it talks about children, obey your parents and the Lord for what this is right. I want to do a little bit of explanation and then share how this passage has affected Debbie and I as we've come through life walking with Jesus. Um, this passage says children, and that word is for young children. Obey your parents and the Lord. And the word obey means to render submissive acceptance, to listen. It means to literally if somebody was knocking on the door, to answer the door quickly. So, you know, someone's knocking on the door, get up, hear the knock, go and answer the door. And then it says, in the Lord, obey your parents in the Lord. And that simply means in the presence of or in the sight of God. So this is aimed toward children who know the Lord, especially. It doesn't mean if you don't, your kids don't know the Lord, they don't have to obey, obey you. You still have a, a, a responsibility to teach them how to obey you. But the idea is that especially children who know the Lord, and in the Lord they obey, because their view is not you, their view is toward God. And in fact, all of these instructions are with a view toward God first, and then loving God through another person. When it says, honor your father and mother, and it refers to the first commandment, it's referring to the Ten Commandments. And, uh, and this is especially for grown children. It could be for younger children, too. But, you know, obeying your parents is usually for children within their household, if you're in a household. But when it says, honor your father and mother, it's describing later in life. It's an attitude now, and it's an attitude la later. To honor is to be able to revere, respect, to count as valuable. And it also infers 
providing and caring for aging parents. And then when it says, it says for you to, it will go well with you and that you may live long in the land, it's describing an occurrence in the history of Israel where they were walking into the promised land and God had given them a set of commandments, the Ten Commandments. It was a summary of this covenant, this almost like a marriage relationship he wanted to have with Israel. And he was describing this, this calling to, in the first of the, the remaining six, six uh, commandments, because uh, the first four were about God, the last six were about our relationships with others, he starts off with the most important relationship, the relationship we have with our own family within our own family, and that it, we must learn to accept and revere and respect our parents. It doesn't mean they're perfect, but it means that we need to understand and see God first, and that in, refle- in respecting God and obeying God, we try to honor our parents. And I, you know, I think about um, my own family. You know, I grew up in, um, this is a picture of my family here. This is my mom and dad. I'm the eldest of three kids. I have a younger brother and sister. They all live in Hawaii. And my dad was a kind of a larger-than-life Texan, and that's kind of a religion in itself. He, he, he just resisted God with his whole, whole heart. Uh, he was a command sergeant major in the Army. He actually played for the Chicago Bears when there was no face masks. He's a very imposing man, highly respected in the Army, a, kill, a trained killer of men. And my mom was a Buddhist background, samurai heritage. You know, again, there was a lot of anger issues in our family. There was a lot of standing up for our rights. Our, our um, gods, if you think about it, were success, significance. And for me, it was academics and achievement and uh, athletics and romance. You know, I didn't believe in Jesus at all. I thought people who believed in God were just fools. I was an atheist. And so pride and self-sufficiency were our family gods. Thank you. And so when I thought about uh, this passage, I mean, I didn't read the Bible. No one in my family or no one in my extended family were Christians. I only, you know, met one Christian during the course of, of my life. He was in high school, my high school friend named David Ishihara. And uh, I was president of the school. I had won um, admission into Harvard, Yale, Princeton, the West Point, uh, different places. I was planning on leaving my family and just kind of just going out on my own as fast as I could. It was a broken family. My father had had many affairs, and uh, just I kept worrying that, that, uh, that the family would break apart before I could get away and get away to college. So, you know, I, I, I talked with my friend David, and David, he, he kept saying to me, Richard, you think your life is set. You think that uh, everything is solved for you just because you have these scholarships or these admissions to these different places. And at the time, I took the um, appointment by the president to West Point because it was a full ride. The other places would have charged too much, and we just couldn't afford college at any of the Ivy League schools. But David said to me, you know, you think your life is set, but one day you're going to come to the end of yourself. And this God who you've rejected, you know, David was a Christian, and he kept telling me about Jesus. This God who you keep rejecting is going to reject you unless you come to the place of humbly submitting and surrendering yourself to him and receiving his love. My friend David died two days after my high school graduation in a head-on collision with a drunk driver. The drunk driver lived, and David died. He went home to the Lord. And I didn't find out till many, many years later how many people he had influenced for Christ as a high school student. He just loved the Lord with his whole heart. And it wasn't until seven years later, I, after I had, I actually had gone off to West Point and decided to come back and study something else, and I'd lost all my other, other opportunities. So I ended up just going to a community college and then eventually going on to the main University of Hawaii campus. And... Um, I had gotten married to my college sweetheart, someone named Kelly. And uh, she had had some issues with uh, f- suicide or feeling, feeling suicidal at different times. And so we somehow, through our codependency, just kind of nurtured each other, and we became each other's worlds. 
As I was getting ready to graduate with my vocational rehabilitation degree, she went back to her home in Maui. And um, of all places, she decided to work for a suicide and crisis center. Um, she found that to be satisfying. She was beginning to resolve some of her own issues. And then she got involved with her married boss. And so by the time I graduated and moved to Maui from Oahu, she had decided that she wanted a divorce and her boss was leaving his wife as well. I decided to take the gun that I had in my, my closet and one late night at midnight uh, with my dog from the pound, I decided I was gonna kill myself because my world was just all about her and what I could achieve and it felt like everything was falling apart. And just as I took the gun off of the safety and held it to my head and put my finger on the trigger, God brought to mind the words of my friend David. One day, you're going to come to the end of yourself. And this God who you've rejected is going to reject you. I thought about that and I cried. And finally, I put the gun back on safety, put it down, and said, God, if you're real, please show me. I went to church the next day at a little church nearby. I heard the gospel, the gospel that says we are broken people. We're disconnected from God and we need the power of Jesus in our lives. And I yielded to Jesus. I became connected to his life. And then God began to redeem the little family that I had or didn't have anymore. I prayed for and actually forgave my former wife almost immediately. And I just prayed that she would come to a place of salvation too, whether she was with me or not. And then I just started to grow in a Bible study with a church, a couple in church who were an example of a very healthy Christian family. They had children, Noel and Karen, Kariah were their names, and they just spent time with me, helping me to grow. And in that starkness of being on Maui where all the, the the uh, shopping centers closed down at 6 p.m. and there's nothing else to do. Me and my dog and the Bible just kind of walked with Jesus. And then eventually what happened was is I met Debbie and uh, went to church on Maui. I was working for Maui Community College and asked uh, the Lord for you know just his healing. And I said, well, Lord, if you want, would you bring someone else into my life? Is that possible? I'm satisfied being alone, but if there's someone else you want me to be with, to have a new family, um, I would welcome that. And Debbie was somebody who had knew, known the Lord longer, longer than me, and uh, we met at church in Manoa Valley Church in, uh, in the mid-1980s. Do you want to say anything about that? <laughs> you know, Richard didn't even know where Psalm 23 was. He said, you know, there's something about the Lord is my shepherd. And, you know, that's just to show you how new he was in the faith, but he was growing and like a rocket, he just took off and soon eclipsed me in terms of um, wisdom and knowledge. And so, um, you know, he really became the leader in that way. Uh, in faith. And I was just so grateful. And, and you know, one of the things about Debbie is she loves and fears the Lord above all, all else. And that's one of the values that we share and say that really helps us to be a healthy family. And so as we dated and then got to the place of being engaged, one of the things that was a mark of our lives was prayer. And Debbie, to her credit and to her you know, just to a testimony to God, she said, you know, we're going to continue to pray for your former wife, Kelly. And we're going to pray for her salvation. And if it's God's will, we're going to pray for reconciliation with her, between you and her. And then in um, 1987, we got married. And Debbie, after the ceremony, said, we're no longer praying for reconciliation between you and your wife, your former wife, your mind now, but we are still praying for salvation. The passage goes on when it talks about after children and uh, children who are younger obeying their parents and then about children, especially older children, honoring their fathers and mothers 
uh, in the way that, and it's interesting, you know, I kind of, when I was studying this passage, I was wrestling through, like, why does he only quote this commandment? What about this commandment is so important? And then I realized this passage was given originally to Jews. The people in, in Ephesus were mostly Romans and Greeks, and there were some Jewish Christians, but they had converted from pantheism, and so they probably thought of themselves as outside of some of the promises of God. And this promise, which was so prominent in the Ten Commandments, was now their promise, too, that God was saying, I love you, I'm going to give you a fulfilling life, and I'm going to be with you as you honor me and honor the family that you have. But the passage goes on, and it says specifically, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And it means specifically for fathers in that instance because in that culture, fathers were kind of the absolute monarchy in their family. They could actually decide if a girl child was born to put them out on the street or to kill them or to set them out into slavery. Their word was absolute. So for a father in a Christian family to be told, don't provoke your child to anger, treat them fairly, discipline them in the ways of the Lord, was a radical departure from anything. But it doesn't mean exclusively fathers. It, it really is meant to say anyone who is a parent, and this whole passage is actually applied to anyone who's a part of the family of God, because we need to obey those that are above us in the faith. We need to honor those, I mean, like you honor Nick and his family as you love and follow the, the words that he gives us from the Lord. But then as you are a leader in your own families, and that means the family of God, as you serve in different ways, the way we serve as pastors or leaders or deacons or team leaders, it says a lot about who we love the most in our lives. That's what was intended here, is a, a, a guideline for family units that goes beyond family units. Debbie and I, as we, as we started life together in 1987 as a couple, and we just celebrated our 35th anniversary this past summer. We, we, um, and we went to Alaska on a cruise, one of our first cruises, so <laughs> it was fun. But the, the thing that we prayed for was that the Lord would use us and transform us, that he would redeem our family for good. And we didn't know what that meant, but we just knew that the Lord was good, and we wanted to turn on that light switch and let it shine for Jesus. And one night... I remember as we were praying um, just after we'd gone to bed and then, and then I woke up in the middle of the night right around three o'clock in the morning and there was a loud sound. We lived on Oahu in Honolulu in a valley called Manoa Valley, just this very quiet, quiet valley. And this sound was like the sound of a cannon going off right next to my bed. It was a voice with such authority and power it made me just shake and drop to the floor. It was the voice of God. And you know, Debbie was sleeping, but I heard it clearly. And the voice said, God's voice said, I shall perfect my will through you. And I thought, what does that mean? What in the world does that mean? I was still shaking, and I woke up Debbie. And Debbie, God, God just spoke. What do you think this means? And she said, and we prayed about it, and she said, I, I feel like what it means is that God is going to use our family for good, and he's going to break you to be usable in his hand. She didn't say her. She said, I think God is going to break you. <laughs> and that was prophetic and true. Not long after that, 10 months into our, our marriage, we found out we were pregnant with our first child. Debbie, who was in her early 30s at the time, and I was, I think, 29, she was 32, um, we're, we're just in shock. We thought, oh no, we're not ready for this. We're still, we're still getting used to each other. We had fought so hard during our engagement year and during our first year of marriage. Uh, there was just this, both of us are very strong-willed, and God was using us to break each other, and especially me. And, um, you know, we thought, wow, what are we going to do? We almost had like seven years worth of fights within one or two years. But it was as if God knew what was coming and he was going to fulfill his prayer for us or his words over us. 
Um, it was as if he wanted to get rid of all those other issues because what was coming next would be so challenging. And so um, into the, you want to share just about the diagnosis? Some of you are medical. Um, I mean, you have nur uh, nurse practitioner, uh, yeah, or PA. Yeah. <laughs> and Nick, and, you know, I'm sure some of you have medical backgrounds. Our firstborn, Naomi, when I was pregnant, found we found out that she had um, a condition called trisomy 18. Um, the other name is Edwards syndrome. Trisomy 21 is Down syndrome. Um, trisomy 18 um, means that Every 18th pair of the chromosome, 18th pair, um, you have three instead of two. And uh, so a lot of um, her body was affected. She was more on the uh, medically fragile end. Naomi was blind, deaf, uh, hole in her heart, lung dam damage, scoliosis, club feet, and microcephaly. Um, and so... Did you want Sorry, me to... Okay, and um, so we had, when we first found out about the diagnosis when I was pregnant, um, our doctor said it's worse than we had expected. She had thought it might be either um, Down syndrome or uh, spina bifida, and uh, when we got the amniocentesis um, test back, it was worse than we had expected. And I'm thinking, what can be worse than either of these things? And um, she said the prognosis for trisomy 18 is very, very grim. And um, most um, would say, you know, to terminate the pregnancy. And she said, I don't do abortions, but you know, this is um, what is often recommended. And so um, Richard and I, we prayed about it, and um, that's when really the first miracle happened for us. Well, for me, because you see, I had not wanted to be pregnant. And when I found out, I was very, very resentful of being pregnant, because it threw a monkey wrench in my life, and then to get this diagnosis. And so I'm just gonna share one more thing. You know, on the way back after the doctor's um, visit, I just broke down and I was thinking, how can I live with this diagnosis? I'm gonna be saddled for the rest of my life taking care of this child. And um, then I thought in the next moment, but the prognosis is so bad, she might die. And then I will be released from this sentence. And in another second, I'm thinking, how can I even feel this, you know, as a mother and as a person like yeah she'll die and so i'm going to be free and and i was just so convicted about that and so when we went to um, his office which was at a church um, we went to the sanctuary and prayed and that's when god did the first miracle i really wanted this baby naomi to live and we didn't have any boys names we only had a girl's name um, and it's spelled Naomi, like in the Bible, who went through a whole buttload of trials herself. And out of her line came um, King David and Jesus. But um, we pronounce it the Japanese uh, way, Naomi. And that is a Japanese name also. And so Nao is to repair or to fix. And me means beautiful. And so God did that, you know, in our lives, out of a broken body, someone that um, people, many people said, um, you know, she really can't do anything or anything useful, and just, um, and as Richard will share, how God changed that. Yeah, that was a miracle that God gave us a name before we ever knew her diagnosis. Psalm 139 says that God knows us in our mother's womb. He knows us before even one day comes to be, and he knows the number of our days. And so when the doctor said, this is a, a little girl, we knew that that name was chosen for her because we didn't have any other names. Jump ahead. God began to keep Naomi alive you know, just day by day. She was born at a little less than three pounds, completely blind, deaf, severely uh, um, developmentally disabled, 
but beautiful and being sustained by God. And we didn't know whether her name to be fixed or healed or repaired and beautiful would happen on earth or whether it would happen after. But one of the things that we did was we just continued to love her day by day and entrust our future to him. I was working at a seminary at the time, and then as her birth came, I decided, well, we needed to have a job that would provide medical insurance. The seminary job was only part-time and had no medical insurance. So I went back to work for the university. And then the word about this young child, this child who should die, continuing to live, started to go out around Hawaii and around the world. She ended up on the front page of newspapers many, many times, television specials. But all we did was just simply care for her and love her. I remember when Naomi was still in Debbie's womb, I sang Jesus Loves Me, the little kid's song. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak, but he is strong. Yes, Jesus loves me. Yes, Jesus loves me. And, you know, Naomi, I didn't know if that was the only time we would have with her when she was in Debbie's womb. And Naomi would just kick me in the face, you know, stop singing because I'm a terrible singer. Uh, but the first time she stopped breathing and coded, and I, we were able to resuscitate her using CPR and artificial uh, respiration, I rode with her in the ambulance and sang that same song. Even though I knew she couldn't hear it, I just sang it in praise of God. And God began through that process of yielding to him, leaning on him, letting him turn the switch on to transform our family and the family beyond us. And as the news article came out during my first sermon uh, in 1990, a year after Naomi was born, my father, the proud Sergeant Major Chicago Bear, he was sitting in the front row of a church where I was preaching and he gave his life to the Lord. He had resisted God all his life. And then he led my mother to the Lord as she faced this kind of dangerous diagnosis that was starting to paralyze her. She finally yielded to Jesus. And then at my mom's funeral after she did die in 1994, my sister and my brother and brother-in-law all came to the Lord. And then it just started happening that over and over hundreds and then thousands of people yielded to God and our little family as we just yielded to the Lord. Now, we have a second daughter, and this is her as a grown child. This is also my father uh, from a few years back. This is Hannah. You know, a couple years after Naomi was born, we found out we were pregnant again, and we thought, how did this happen? Because Naomi, in her blindness, she was not able to tell night and day. She was just like... Her, Day and night were the same to her. She would just not be able to see anything. And so we had this little double bed, and at between 4 a.m. when the shift would end, the last medicines would be given, Debbie uh, would go to bed at around 4 a.m., and she'd put Naomi in between us. And Debbie and I, for years, we just stayed completely still all night long. We didn't move at all. And Naomi would just sing her song. She had this voice and this song that was unusual, in the sense that she would just be kind of looking off in the distance and just waving her hand and singing. And I think she was praising God in her own way. But in the middle of the night, between 4 and 6 a.m., when I finally woke up and took over the shift again, she would just poke us in the eye or, stick, or wrap her leg around us. And we thought, how in the world did we make Hannah? We were just taking care of Naomi the whole time. This was immaculate conception. And it was, it was impossible that this would happen. Um, but Hannah came along, and she was vivacious, intelligent, very energetic. And all of the things I shared with you about raising a child to obey in the Lord and to teach them uh, in the discipline and instruction of the Lord um, was able to be exercised with Hannah in a different way from Naomi. Because with Naomi, we ran an ICU in our house. We had to do a lot of things. But um, on the back of your notes, I put something down for you parents that really were, are looking for some tips. Uh, and I think this is actually beyond just for parents about how to nurture and not provoke your children, especially dads or parents. First, create a context of grace, love, support, respect, and encouragement. And this is really for anyone who's in the body of Christ who has authority or leadership responsibilities. You're like a parent 
to your body. This is a good instruction manual for any pastor. Always speak the truth in love. Attend to the material and emotional needs of your flock or your children. Teach, warn, hold accountable, and discipline, all as part of life lived to Christ, giving them a theology. Give experiences, especially in work and in caring for others. Refuse to put down, demean, or, dam or damage them. Avoid shrill and angry speech. Reject jealousy and contempt. Grant freedom from legitimate boundaries. Avoid unhealthy pressure or expectations. Refuse to live through the children. You know, before my mom came to Christ and before my dad came to Christ, there was such expectations on me. And it was, you know, especially Asian-American families, the oldest son is really under high pressure. Um, my mom, when I came back from West Point, she wouldn't talk to me for two years because she was in such shame over my, my uh, departure from the academy. But as, I, as we loved Naomi and then Hannah, God used that witness to be a light for my family. And all of them came to know the Lord. And all of my dad's first family, he had had another wife before he met my mom and three other children. All of those children came to the Lord, uh, my half-sisters sisters and brothers. And then there's just, we found more and more ripples around us. We found out maybe about six or seven years ago that my former wife, the one that we prayed for, she became a Christian at the same church where I became a believer. The ripples around a family that is yielded to God are so powerful. And it's not because of us. It's simply us saying yes to God. God wants to do that in your life as well. He wants, as he heals where you are, some of you have come to a place of yielding to Jesus and saying yes to him. You realize that he's saying, trust me. And I pray that today or soon, not long from now, you will yield and see the grace that can come. But God wants to heal even some of those ripples of broken family life. You know, right before COVID, my dad passed away and went home to the Lord. It was a beautiful and difficult time. But just right after, I got a note on Facebook, this amazing little note from someone on Facebook Messenger that says, I think I'm related to you. I live in Chicago. I think you may be my half brother. And I thought, who is this person? Are they trying to, you know, steal money from us or something? What is this? And the picture that appeared on the Facebook Messenger post was the face of my dad on a woman's body. And I thought, that's my father's face on a woman's body. Did they Photoshop this? What is this? My father had had an affair with someone the same year that I was born. And this woman, Loretta, had become a believer and had been searching for my dad all of her life. And it wasn't until his obituary came out that she found out where he, came, where, where he was and that he had a son and daughter, that he had sons and, and, daughter, and a daughter. So he, she looked us up and contacted us. And now I have another family member in Christ and God redeemed. God is in the business of redeeming things that seem like trash to us. Through his power, through his grace, he can do anything as long as we yield to him. I'm gonna end with a, a story just that comes from Naomi's life that really kind of captures the heart of a father. You know, at one time, Naomi, who had suffered through 50-something pneumonias in her life, we actually worked on a very, uh, like 53 or 54 pneumonias. Um, we were, she was, she, before, the, before the age of six, she was tube-fed. We had a feeding tube that was implanted into her, into her stomach, but before that we had a nasal gra gastric tube. And sometimes she would choke and aspirate the milk into her lungs, and that would lead to pneumonia. So we, we learned how to fight pneumonia very well. We actually came up with some protocols that were used by some of the intensive care units. They, they asked us for some counsel on how to handle pneumonia with a very delicate child. But there was a point at which Naomi had this very serious pneumonia. She was in the hospital at Kaiser Hospital in Honolulu. Debbie was at home with Hannah, and I decided to sleep at the hospital and be alongside Naomi. Um, 
And uh, just, just to be an encouragement to watch over her care. And there was a nurse who was a Christian who was on duty that night around midnight. Naomi was in an oxygen tent. She had a nasal cannula on, blowing oxygen into her. She was uh, in a humidified oxygen tent, and we were just fighting uh, day and night to try to keep her alive. I didn't know that, the actually, that actually the following night that God would do this miracle that we ended up capturing on video with several doctors, nurses, and the staff, in which God would at the last second give us a word to do some, a medical procedure that we had never known about or done before and to suggest that to the doctors because they expected Naomi to code any second. That that, that was going to happen the next night and that would save her life the following night. But on the night before, I had no idea that, that the, the next night would hold that. All I knew was that Naomi was in pain. Her lungs were crackling. You know, this is one of her toys from long ago. It's like got a little cellophane underneath it. Her lungs were crackling a little bit like this. And so I asked the nurse if it's possible, could I take Naomi out of the tent, the oxygen tent, and hold her? Because being blind and deaf, she was facing real discouragement. You know, especially if she can't smell us, she can't touch us, she can't feel my chest against her. And the nurse said, well, let's figure out something. So she took two oxygen tubes from the wall, taped them to my back, and turned them on at 15 liters of flow, maximum flow, filling up the room with, with you know, raw oxygen, and left the cannula on her, uh, under her nose. And I held Naomi against my chest. And in her own way, you know, we knew the language. There, by the way, these trisomy 18 children are spread out throughout the world. Most of them do die before birth, but a very few of them do live longer. And wherever they're born, revivals have started. Thousands and thousands of people have come to the Lord. They're like little prophets and pastors, just speaking the words of God in ways that we don't understand unless we're willing to listen. But she spoke to me in kind of her own language of kind of body, body shifting, her tone, uh, the way she moved her hands and moved her head. And I knew what she was saying to me. She was saying, it hurts. It hurts so much, Daddy. And I just cried because I wanted to take that pain away. And I prayed a prayer, actually two prayers, neither of which I really expected a response from God, except, you know, when we pray, we have the ability to just speak out to our Father in heaven, and he loves us, and we can just talk with him. And sometimes as we pray, God changes our prayer and, the, and what we realize we, are, we should be praying for as we pray. But the first prayer was a prayer that a father would never normally want to pray for their child. As Naomi was just drowning in the pneumonia and suffering so much, the first prayer was, God, if it's her time, please take her quickly. Now, don't let her suffer anymore. You know, that's a prayer as a father you don't really want to pray. But I just wanted the pain to stop. So I cried, and in the silence of that dark room with the nurse standing behind me, I prayed the second prayer. And the second prayer was this, as I felt her heart just beating so fast and her lungs crackling. I said, God, if it's possible, would you trade my heart and my lungs for Naomi's? Could, we, could you give them to her so that she could breathe free? And then I just cried and kept holding her. And in the silence of that room, I heard the voice of the Lord. Just hear and hear. And he said, you love Naomi, and you would trade your heart and your lungs for her. Do you realize I already answered your prayer? I saw the world drowning and dying in sin just like Naomi is drowning in pneumonia. And I did give the world my heart and my lungs in the form of my son so that they could breathe free of sin.
and I understood the gospel so much more deeply than I ever had understood it before. It's the heart of a father sacrificing himself for his child. This passage is about redeemed family life and it's not just about procedures or rituals. It's about the heart of our Father in heaven being expressed in all the members of a family, whether it's a nuclear family or a church family. Loving, obeying, submitting, being disciplined in our walks with the Lord because we realize something greater is at stake. I pray that that message would be what you would take from today and that uh, you'll have your own stories and some of you probably already do have stories of how God has transformed your family. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much. Thank you that you are concerned about little things that we think the rest of the world doesn't care about. How we, how we discipline our child or how we make our food or how we study our Bible. You're concerned about it because you want us to become like your son. And I pray, Father, that today as we consider the beauty of family, family in Christ, that you, above all, will be lifted up that you will strengthen those who feel like maybe they've gone so far away from a healthy family, that you'll show, show them that they are part of your family, that you want to adopt them into your family, Lord, that they will say yes. They will do as I did that day when I held that gun to my head, that I would remember and realize that I am ultimately unable to save myself. Only you can save and that, Father, you can connect us back to even um, estranged loved ones as we lo learn to submit and serve and love and honor. I pray that there would be forgiveness for those wrongs that were done against us and grace for those things that we have done against others, that you will heal, bring together those who are separated and that the vision of what you said to me in that hospital room of a father who would sacrifice himself for his child that that would be what fills us sacrificial love not trying to grab for anything but instead keeping open hands to you thank you Jesus amen